don't plug into my laptop. Okay, hold on. Hey, Katie. Hey, Katie Jeminder. How are you? Hi ya? there. I'm good. Tell me, tell me about um, these, this, these headphones that you're very excited about. Oh, so a friend of mine bought me these. They're they're Sennheiser um, Ambio smart headset. And they're just like, they look like regular ear, like um, corded earbuds, earplugs, like that wrap around the back of your ear. But they do an amazing job of audio quality. So like I could go walk with my phone in my hand and probably record something that would sound equally not equally as your setup, but like decent level because it does such a good job of, of, of noise reduction. So I wear them all the time. If I'm on my phone, makes it sound like I'm professional. Are they, are they comfortable? And what's the battery life like? There's no battery because they Oh, plug because they're into wired. your phone. Oh, right, Yeah, they're right. wired and um, they're super comfortable and they have like multiple sizes for tiny eared people like me. Do they have, are they um, compatible with um, uh, an iPhone? Yeah, it it has that that jack. I forget what the 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 jack is, and um, then it they come, they they're compatible with this Dolby, um, recording like app on your phone. Ooh, that I might was my pick phone. Sorry. I might pick some up because I have uh of course the iPhone the the Apple earbuds and then I also have the Microsoft Surface earbuds. Um but the the Microsoft Surface earbuds they have great functionality and you have to sort of twist them to get them into your ear so they stay really well but then my ear kind of starts to hurt even with the multiple sized ones after a few hours and they don't really work very well with an iPhone which is probably something that I felt that you know Apple did on purpose I don't know so maybe I'll get Oh, yeah, the of ones course. that you have but anyway Yeah, they're amazing. hi yes They're like, hi, they're like 60 bucks. then they're 60 bucks Yeah, something like that. They're like, yeah. okay By the way, did you hear that ding on my phone? I did not. I, okay, good, 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 good. Okay. All right. I Yes. am taking Hi. this moment to introduce um, our listeners. And today uh, we have four listeners. Three of them are unconscious. One of them is staring out the window. That would be Jack Kerouac, our producer. Um, but I think that he is passively listening, um, you know, while... looking out the window. Sometimes I think he needs a bit of a distraction, um, but it is nice that we have pretty much uh, quadrupled our normal uh, listener numbers. Um, Well, my handler is laying in the sun right now. would this be a Frenchie handler? This would be what I thought was a Frenchie pug mix that I adopted from the Milo Foundation, but then I did his DNA, and it turns out he's a hundred percent pug. And Really? his name for the yes, his name for the record is Axel Rose, Marquis Saint Geminder the Thirteenth. <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Uh, I have to make a correction here. I actually, we actually have five listeners because I just saw that um, my second Norwegian force, force cat is in the living room where I'm recording this with you. She is asleep in her little tunnel. Um, And this isn't that often that I have all five of my pets in the living room. So usually not everyone is getting along so well. But today we're we're pretty zen. We're pretty pretty chill with everyone. So that's really nice. Maybe Katie I'm bringing Jeminder, some of that good injury. you are 
the C, the co-founder and chief of strategy at Scent.co. We're going to get into this in a little bit. You are also an investor in my company. Now, we normally don't talk about Ozarka on this program, but I am so proud that you um, are on our cap table. I just have to share it with the world. And um, first question that I like to ask everyone who joins the podcast as a guest is, who are you and where are you from? Well, the who are who am I part? I'm Katie Jeminder. That it goes a little deeper than just my name. Um, I am I am a lot of things, and I'm from a lot of places. Um, I was born on the East Coast, and so I got a little little bit of East Coast in me. And I spent the majority, like six to twenty something, in Davis, California. Um, so I grew up there. I went through the public education system there. And then I also went to university in Davis, um, which which oddly enough was a very different experience from growing up there. Um, and then I'm a little bit Seattle where I met you. And I'm presently from Bolinas, California, with a mixture of San Francisco, California thrown in there. Um, but really, I think I'm from Africa, deep down, deep down, deep down inside someplace. It's my happy place. We are going to dive into that in a second. Um, and Katie, what are you, um, well, let, let's just like this, like back into our story a little bit. So did, indeed, we did meet at Seattle, in Seattle when we worked for the same employer. Um, that employer was Amazon.com. And I remember you as being this rising star who rose pretty quickly, one of the few women in the company that had some technical prowess. Um, I remember you just being the go-to person as a TPM. Uh, I think we worked in several departments together. And I remember, um, of course, she was sort of like the second mascot um, uh, of the canine uh, persuasion, Lulu, your Frenchie. And um, <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I just remember you just being like this, this, you know, really brilliant person, highly respected. And then, you know, everybody's leaving the company years go by. I'd always wondered what you were up to. I always sort of, I don't know, just really admired you in a groupy sort of way. And then we got back into touch. I think I just sort of wore you down. I'm like, Katie, we've got to get back into touch. And you were up for it. And we talked for a while. We found that we had a lot of common experiences or came to some common conclusions about our, our past, um, well, our past at our uh, at Amazon. And I was, I was a little bit heartbroken in a way that your experience as somebody who I had respected so much was kind of the same as mine but then I also it filled me with sort of a rage and empowerment I'm like oh my god if this is happening to Katie too like what hope is there for any of us women in the tech world or the entrepreneurial world um but I'd love for you to describe what the um you know like again we're gonna we're gonna go back and forth um through all yeah. of this stuff Katie but first I'd really well love it's funny you. because yeah, go ahead I'm, I'm sorry, you know, ADHD, 
It's like my brain's moving and I'm already ready to talk. Um, It's funny. It's funny that you, that way that you describe me because I didn't know any of those things, including being smart. Really. I only figured that out like in my (laughs) thirties. And as far as rising star goes, like I was just super scrappy. Um, I'd never had a job like Amazon and I was so excited to be there. And, um, and it was like a sport for me and I'm deep down inside and ask. And so it was like 10,000 hours. It was, I wanted to be good at it. And, you know, you said TPM and it's like, that was one of the things that broke me at Amazon was I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't really write code other than some basic Perl. Um, and basic HTML, but I could grok stuff. And I, I would, I would, anyone on the technical side that would teach me something, I would gravitate towards them. And so I learned a bunch of things and was able to to understand and, and do different things at Amazon, but they would never let me be a TPM. I'll never forget the conversation. Um, and I, I won't name names, but I'll never forget the conversation with with one of the leaders there that I I wasn't qualified to be a technical product manager because I had didn't have an engineering background. Hmm. That's um that's really rich considering that any technical person um was uh, supposedly qualified to be a manager of technical teams just by working there maybe 6 months longer than all the new uh engineers coming in. So how does that jive? <laughs> I think, you know, one thing I, I have realized is that organizations are are evolving things and and they're they're living and breathing and and shape shifting all the time. And I I think that's one of the things that being cognizant of it is important, but also holding on to the values. And I think there were some values at Amazon that got lost along the way because mm-hmm. Lots of people were hired with, you know, physics degrees and philosophy degrees in the early, early, early days. And they ended up, you know, in positions of, of authority. And and that was one of the values, I think, early on that got lost. And also, it was still quite a young organization with a bunch of young people running around, uh, <laughs> trying to figure everything out. Um, as we, you know, lear- learning by doing to the extreme. Yeah, I don't totally. know how much of the learning part actually happened in, in that the learning was passed on or repeatable or if it was just this constant cycle of chaos. And I'm very curious to know what it's like there now, if it's changed, if there's more grown-ups on the managerial level. Um, I'm sure there. I'm sure there. There are. There's I'm gotta sure be right. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean they're good, but um, but there's gotta be because it's such a big organization. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about I, ADHD. I just, oh, go, Katie. You go. go ahead. Nope, you, you, <laughs> I was just you. gonna. I was just gonna say because you mentioned the learning on the job, and that's a huge part of my personal narrative, especially around Amazon, because. You know, I had like six or seven different jobs there. You know, I'd I'd go from one team to the next or one Jeff project to the next. 
Um, and so that kept me interested and it, and it did keep me learning there. Um, and I like to say like at that time, so, you know, I graduated with a degree in political science and physical geography, which had nothing to do with tech. And um, there's a story there, but, but so I end up at Amazon and I, I like to say that while other people were out getting MBAs or, you know, a master's degree in something, there wasn't a thing called user experience really at that time yet. Um, I was getting it on the job. So, so in a way, even, even if it was all over the shop yard sale style, I learned a tremendous amount that I carry with me today. Yeah, and I do too, but in a completely different way, because everything that I learned is not applied in terms of you think about like applied science versus, uh, you know, fundamental research. And we talk about ADHD a lot on the podcast. Um, So, you know, all five of my listeners know that I have ADHD as well. It's something that you and I have discussed (laughs) and joked about many times um, offline. But ADHD people, you know, we get very, very amped up and focused on the goal. And then once we achieve the the short-term goal, maybe the long-term execution on it fades away because the interest starts to die out. Um, and so when I was hired as a music editor, my boss was the former music editor at Rolling Stone. I had never written or published a music review in my life. Uh, I think they were just giving me a shot. So I could understand from his perspective and all the other people, um, and when I say people, I mean, you know, men mostly that I was surrounded by, that I was thrown into a tank of of sharks. And um, I was so determined that I didn't really care. But they were also not in a position either from a maturity standpoint or a managerial standpoint. And certainly nobody back then was talking about, um, you know, neuro... Uh, divergent people in the workplace um, that, you know, maybe I was set up for failure. I don't think that I failed because at the last job that I had at Amazon, I was actually managing the team that I started in. But there definitely wasn't an opportunity of like, okay, so Beth is pretty new in this world. So let's support her. Let's give her something manageable. I mean, you know, that, that didn't exist in Amazon anyway. And it certainly didn't exist when they're looking at this girl going, why is she here? She was in like the customer service department six weeks ago. And now she's an editor among all of us, like very well-known editors. But, you know, I, I was able to, to, to do a pretty good job. Um, it was really toxic environment. And, uh, and, and mostly because it was just the music business. And I was like, you know, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. The editorial side of this business isn't as interesting to me as it turns out as the more technical side. So that's when we I jumped over to the more uh, product development side. But then again, I mean, again, to their credit, this other thing that happened to me, which was a f- failure within Amazon, because it, like you, like most people, we jumped around and had a bunch of different job titles. I was given the job title of senior product manager. I have to, I would never have admitted it at the time, but I didn't know what a product manager was. And all of a sudden I had this title and it was basically this giant to-do list of these small to moderate sized um, technical projects or anything from back 
backend catalog tooling to UX features, that it was just my job to make sure that they got launched. And that's a very specific skill set. And for somebody like me that is like, you know, allergic to details, it was like the worst possible job. And I was failing so desperately and I couldn't figure out like why. And um, they were trying their best to micromanage me into success and it was so humiliating. And I'm like, no guys, I think that this is like not working for me at all. But I wish I would have been able to say that at the beginning and not at the end. Like, why are you giving me this job? I have no idea how to do this job. So it was all so insane. <laughs> this it is so insane. This is this is why my title now is Chief of Strategy. Um, one, because I'm really good at strategy. I'm really good at 50,000 feet. And I can zoom in to the to the ten to the ten feet and look at something and pick apart why I think it's not working, but it's only because I'm not working in it every day. And I finally found my my niche over the last, you know, decade of doing consulting and things like that. So that I found the right niche for me in, you know, in divvying up with my co-founder, who's going to do what. And I mean, what what I and I'm I bet you feel the same way ha, being a leader of a company being a CEO co-founding something doing what you do is you're creating the environment you want and it's a healthy one like I told my my niece came to work for us for a couple like a year and a half doing customer service and there's a, a kid down the street from me that's doing it now and I said to them you know you guys are kind of ruined because you're not going to find this healthy of an organization in the future. <laughs> so sorry about that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have these discussions a lot now, too, if it goes in the opposite direction. I mean, on the one hand, I couldn't be more in favor of bringing the feminine energy to management and uh, C-suites. But when I am... I don't in- even know if it's... I think it's just like like healthy <laughs> yes let's just say healthy I, I i that feminine energy thing sounds so woo woo but you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna use it out of his out of i feel convenience. you i feel you but yeah but healthy yeah it's a great um better word and um thanks katie and then also i go to a lot of uh sort of um female mm, mentoring uh, communities and departments within universities. And it's so energizing to be around these young women who really got their act together. And at the same time, when they're just, when the boys aren't in the room, there's just a feeling of relaxation and comfort and ease. And I, you know, this is not a male bashing situation at all. It's just a reality. And I don't know why, and I'm not really going to spend a lot of energy questioning why, but man, is it necessary? Like I need it. It, 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 it sustains me. And at the same time, the conversations are so uh, confronting, but in a very gentle way. So the conversations that that we've been having in the last year or so are um, young women saying, you know what, maybe I don't want to be the CEO of a publicly traded company. Maybe I just want to have a really nice company and have a nice salary and maybe 10 or 20 employees and that's it. 
And I'm like, okay, that's great. But then that's just, that's a different conversation. That's small business. And there, and I, I don't really think that there's a place for that here because it already feels like giving up. And I'm like, no, 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 I want exponential growth. I want, you know, I want that huge level of achievement as a female founder, um, as a sustainability company. And I want to be wildly, hugely, ridiculously successful. Um, and sometimes when I retreat into that, no, I think it's going to be fine if we just stay a small business. That's usually just because I'm tired or maybe I had a bad day. But I, it, to me, it's a scary signal that, you know, healthy or women-run businesses are, um, I'm not sure yet, maybe it's more sustainable if everybody just kind of lowers their ambitions. But at the same time, you know, I think we have something to prove, but then maybe we don't because we're still just sort of aspiring to what men have defined as success, which is like oh. world domination. Like I'm struggling with this right now. Well, I mean, when I say healthy, I'm I'm talking about shared values, um, and my co-founder is. Um, I mean, we, in a way, we couldn't be more different, and in a way, we ha have like the absolute. I mean, I swear to God, I've said to people, "This is my best relationship with a man ever in my entire life." <laughs> um, and we come at things very, very differently, um, but our shared values make the end result really good. And and I also think that size. <laughs> this is I'm doing air quotes because I'm being funny um size doesn't matter um I mean we are a tiny team and we are scrappy as fuck and we produce we we do so much with so little and we want to be wildly successful and I'm convinced we are I can I'm convinced we're going to change the world and we might do it we might kick that off. Well, we have kicked it off, but like when it really kicks off, we may be a team of seven people. Yeah. Yes. And I think that, again, this is something that you and I have in common is you call it strategy. I call it vision from 50,000 yeah. feet and being yeah. very, very good at pivoting without losing focus on the point on the horizon. So one of the ooh, things that ooh, I'm ooh, ooh. that's this is a sticker for me and I okay. have to respond to it. Go for it. Pivot. Pivot. Is I have an allergic reaction to the word, but you said exactly the right thing, which is that fixed point on the horizon. So anytime and VCs love to say that word, you need to pivot to AI. And I'm like, oh my God, pivot to me means ditch what your original goal was. So I, I insist on using the word tack, like we're sailing. Winds change? Okay. We change our sail. We, 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 we change the sails, but we don't, we're, we're not, we don't, we don't just abandon ship. I like, you know, there's two words now that you've, you've put into my lexicon, Katie. So I like, I think that these words really, really matter. And I like the word tack and I'm going to use that instead of pivot from now Please on. Please do. Because that's always been my struggle too. Like when I think pivot, it's like, oh, well, your business model's failing. So you're just going to throw yourself in some other direction. And that's not what I mean when I say of it. It is, it is a tack. And so one of the things that I'm thinking about in terms of, female funding and you know getting getting no's all the time when I feel like if I was a man I probably would have gotten <laughs> yeses and I'm like you know I, I, I've been starting to tell myself that you know um is 
is Ozarka, will you do anything you have to do, even if it means putting, you know, your male co-founder in front um, to get the funding? Uh, or are you going to have Ozarka be a martyr for you know, the female struggle of funding? And what feels natural to me is to have Ozarka be the, mar the martyr. I would rather Ozarka not get funding than put Michael in front and get funding. And so, again, that tack, I'm like, you know what? If it's impossible for me to get the funding that I need and the time that I need it, maybe the VC world for me isn't right. And so I'm thinking of new ways to get that money in. For example, all of the enterprise contracts that we're close to signing, to have all of those companies come together and say, guys, look, you all get what you want much faster. If you just give us like the revenue that we're going to incur from you, give me 50% of it right now up front, because then you're the boss, not the VCs who are, you know, telling me like, you need to get the AI, like everything you put them putting the money in is on, is on, you know, it's on your ledger and it's all for you. Maybe there are new I ways love it. Of I love to build it. these relationships, you know? I think there are, and I think the VC world is changing, right? The bottom fell out for a lot of them. A lot of funds are underwater. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no money floating around right now. Like I'm living on a wing and a prayer um, and, and vision, right? And um and it's gonna come together some way. And 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 I I I hate to culturally appropriate Malcolm X, but like by any means necessary is kind of the way that Cam and I think about things. And sometimes, and, and it's like, read the audience, right? Right. It, and, and we don't like that either. Like we've, 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 the, 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 the role of CEO is a hot potato between the two of us. And, um, and that's, and that's not a bad thing. That's just like, what, what's going to be the best for the audience that we're talking to. And yeah. Uh, come come to find out that the environment is the struggle right now. The environment is the struggle. And we just got um, a no from one of the VCs that I thought for sure at this point in the, in the, <laughs> yeah, company, the company stage was going to give us a yes. And so, you know, normally when you ask for feedback, it's just crickets. But I was like, come on, like, I want you to be a part of this round. Like, what's going on? And he said, well, you know, the decision also partially was that we were going to put the investment in other places because one of our major investments just went bankrupt. And I was like, oh, OK, so Beth, like, <laughs> you know, you like get out of your bubble a little bit. This isn't all just about you and whether or not you're worthy of investment. There's other considerations right now in play um, still. It, you know, I, I'm still, like, okay, so, still. So are, are any of those other companies that you are investing in lit, led by women? any of them and um i wanted to i said to, i said to cam one day i was like if there was a fund that was like over 50 eight woman adhd bipolar two <laughs> but 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 like and by the way and i've uh, i've said this a lot like what are my afflictions are my superpowers same so like i'm I am happy to report exactly what I am and there's no shame in my game. But like if there was if there was a fund that was all about about getting money to those types of people, I still don't know I'd, that I'd get it Be because of the state of the world right now, or at least the financial side of things. And everybody went hog wild 
during the, 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 you know, the bubble and the bull and the who's he, what's it. And, and people are hurting bad and they, they're, they have, they don't, VCs answer to LPs, which was it's similar to us having to answer to VCs, right? So looking for these different ways of getting flywheels going is brilliant. Do it. We don't tack have any baby, other choice. It's it, tack and, baby and, tack. That's your tack baby tack. That's right. The winds are changing, and um, and this is and also I, that scrappiness. It is a little bit more fun. I mean, you can let it defeat you, but you can be like, wait, no, where do we move? Where do we move? It it feels a little bit more fun to me than just kind of staying on the steady track of like, now we have our pre seed then C, then Series A, Series B, like. Oh, but you know that the amount of money you're asking for is too little to be called a Series A. So now you still have to call it C too. I'm like, well, why do these semantics even matter? But I guess they do. I'm like, I, I, I don't. And it isn't too little actually I, good. <laughs> yeah, I guess not, because then you've like set yourself up for something. I don't know. This is the advice somebody gave me, and this is one of the brilliant things about being able to make up your own rules with your company. It's like at any time, if it feels unnatural for you, or if it just never going to make sense for you, or if it feels arbitrary and stupid, tack, like go in another direction for funding that makes sense for you. You have the freedom to do that, like lead the way there. And I have to have that conversation with myself sometimes too. Um, well, and it's funny to, to, to the, to the young women that you're speaking to that are, that are sort of hedging, right? Maybe I just want a small company. Well, guess what? You have to be a small company before you're a big one. And the reality is that exponential growth means you go from a small company to a big company really, really fucking fast. So sometimes you don't even have a choice. That's right. And that's kind of what's happening to us right now coming out of COVID. And still people are like, well, we would like to see your revenue be higher. I'm like, can you just imagine that our revenue would be higher if we hadn't been, you know, barely surviving for the last two years because of COVID? Like, we're just kind of pulling those two years out, throwing them away and, and hitting the reset button where we were in 2019. Can we just kind of assume that this is happening Can I have a little bit of faith from you guys? I'm actually thinking about if it's an idea to put sort of in the index of my slides, a little reminder with a few bullet points of um, how successful businesses are that are run by women over 50 with ADHD and uh, statistically <laughs> how much more successful they are than, um, you know, than, than, you know, similar businesses run by their male counterparts who, 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 you know, get their funding and then blow through it in 24 months. And then, you know, the, all of our models are accused of being defective because those guys fucked it up, you know, in the meantime, I'm like, well, oh, the other customers and recurring revenue. And like, what else do you need from me? Like, you know, what well, else? That's, do you the, need that's, that's, that's a really great point because, you know, one of the things I, I mean, I've been privy to a lot of, different funding rounds where, you know, venture capital in the heyday was putting money into things that were just flat out ideas. There wasn't even a prototype, right? We've been around since 2017. We have customers. We don't have exponential growth yet, but that's because we need fuel to get the flywheels going and we're doing everything we can. And it just, it, it's baffling, right? It's really baffling that, You'll put, you'll put, I mean, we have many examples of the millions of dollars that have gone into things that evaporated into thin air. Yet, you know, one of the, one of the criticisms of us is you've been around since 2017 and you don't have exponential growth. 
But yeah. I'm like, but we're alive. You know, yeah, maybe we're, we're the here. maybe maybe we're the cockroach of the sort of crypto web three thing that started back then, but still we're still here. Oh we're my here. God, the co- the cockroach is the next zebra. It's just, <laughs> it went from unicorn to zebra to cockroach. I'm a cockroach too. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> um but one of the, but one of those cool hissing Madagascar cockroaches that are like iridescent or something and you know and they're big orange. they're like and, yeah the ones that hang up by the pool um <laughs> you said something um that's also been topical in my circle lately about shared values and uh I, again like this um this uh, conference that I was at at um, the Erasmus University for all of these female entrepreneurs, I, I led a panel and a couple of the panelists were talking about um, social capital, which is the idea exactly as you said of people naturally, and I think it's okay if we all admit this, gravitating toward others who seem like them and that usually traditionally means looks like them talks like them comes from a similar background we tend to naturally gravitate toward people who reflect back something that we see in ourselves and we need to extend that to things like shared values so people who believe the same things that we believe in that want the same things that we want and that gives us a whole new area to find common ground outside of the superficial, which is actually holding us back. Um, and he calls one of the- I think it, it goes, it, shared language, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it, it's, 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 it comes down to language for me um, of, of a way, like, and values are reflective by language, so. Anyway, reflective by language and if you have shared values even if you come from two totally different backgrounds the person that's maybe a bit farther ahead or a bit more privileged can open up is more willing to open up their network their and the access to resources that they might have to somebody else that they find that they have those shared values that was um i mean really exciting cam and i cam and i couldn't be more different people um i mean just more different people um from looks to, to backgrounds to everything, but we have shared values and it makes building and building a company and hiring people that much Sorry easier. Sorry about the doggy doorbell. Totally. So the question is, how do you get to find those shared values? Like what kind of conversations do you, you have you, to, you know, especially when you're hiring somebody or looking for a business partner? Well, when, when, when we, we had a sort of uh, a refounding moment, right? And we spent the first few months working on our values, the language, agreeing on them. They're not necessarily in priority order, but um, I was I was um, adamant that we have this because that's our playbook. So when we're faced with a decision of like, should we build this thing or do that thing? All we have to do is go back to our values and say, all right, are these things built into the product? Like one of our big values is reciprocity, um, both between us and our customer, between, and our business is about, is around creators or artists and the people that that are passionate about them. Is there reciprocity built in there? Um, and if there isn't, then we have an easy answer that's not something we should work on. 
if you can, yeah, it's it's absolutely critical, whether you call it values or mission statements um, or what have you, to have that in place from day one, because you can always return to it when you're just, when you're stuck. And it, at least for me, it makes it really easy to push through that ambiguity. Um, well, you know how, you know how there's people will say like, look at yourself in the mirror, right? Well, when you look at yourself in the mirror, like the mirror can lie to you and you can kind of interpret it the way you want. And I always say like, the way you're seen by other people is better than a mirror. Like that resonance from, from flesh. And I kind of feel the same way about values. So there's mission statement, but values, like, I don't know, we have like nine values or something. And some of them I even stole, you know, and appropriated from, from the values at amazon.com. But, you know, those things reduce you know, the, the opinion-based decision-making because there's resonance there in a sense, or if I'm too, too riffing too far. Well, Katie, let's get into what the company is, what it does, why you started it. Tell the story. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, in a weird way, um, it's not a rebuttal, but it's, funny enough, a continuation of every place I've worked. Um, and the mission of our company is to enable anyone to create, to make a creative income. Um, and I mentioned it started in 2017 and in 2017, it was at the sort of the, the very early excitement around, uh, around Bitcoin. And it was, um, basically a way uh, it was started as a social network for creators and it was a way for people it almost had an element of mechanical Turk built into it which was like you could ask questions you could get feedback on on your work um, and you could reward people with you know a little bit of Ethereum so pennies so that's where the name scent comes from um, and we did staking and, and different types of things in the crypto world. And then we sort of left the crypto world and it's really, really focused on people being able to build an audience distribution and then ultimately monetization uh, of their audience and their work. Okay. So and, can you give, give me a concrete example. Um, okay. So I take a lot of pictures and I, used to post them on Instagram and I had a following of, I don't know, um, 900 people right on Instagram and I would get likes and a comment here or there. Um, but I don't own my audience on Instagram. I can't take my audience with me. Um, there's no way for me to really monetize anything on, on there. If I, if I were to one day have a show, which like I never considered myself an artist until recently funny enough um I, I i would only be able to reach 10 percent of my audience if i said hey i'm having a show because of the algorithms only 10 percent of people would see it so i have my own page it's katie.scent.co i have over 2600 followers um people collect my photos either for free as an nft or they buy them i've actually made money not a lot, 
but I've made money. People buy the things that I put up. And I went from not, not really knowing that people appreciated the stuff I, I did because it's just a like on Instagram, right? But it doesn't give you context of you think it's funny, you think it's really well done. Like there's there's that's not a part of that ecosystem. And all of a sudden, I'm now in a place where I get like constructive feedback or money or people are collecting it as an NFT, which means they see whether they see value in it, they want it to be a part of their collection. And now I have this collection of NFTs. Well, right now where there's a profile, there's a profile page, you can, you can share it. You can look at it. I mean, this is the problem with the ecosystem at large is that there was this big boom around NFTs, right? And NFTs do, I don't even, we don't even really call them that anymore um, because it's a misnomer and people think that, that the technology just represents digital art. But the reality is that NFT could be a ticket stub. It could be the poster from the show. It could be uh, it could be anything you really want it to be. It could be a live event. Um, it's it's proof of attendance. It's it's like do you did you ever used to collect your ticket stubs to shows that you would go to? Totally. Like you have to ask that question. I know, <laughs> but but so you did, and like and 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 those are memories, right? And I, I think that's ultimately what these collections are for people is like, I hang art on my walls. I have, I collect certain things. You collected ticket stubs and maybe there's no value long term for that collection of ticket stubs, but there is to you because value is subjective. And we, as humans, we all collect one thing, no matter what we collect memories and the technology that blockchain and this thing called an NFT, which is really just metadata on the blockchain, what it does is it locks something in to an immutable ledger that says this thing happened, Katie was there. Katie got the set list. <laughs> Katie was the first person who who invested in, not that this is true, but you know, there's so many ways to think about this, but like Katie invested in Ozarka. Katie found Mamiwata in Cape Town, South Africa in 2017 and, you know, has been a fan ever since. And she's a part of their inner circle or their favorite customers or whatever it is there's there's so many ways to use this technology that adds to our personal digital identity that we can control and that's what's getting lost in this sea of oh nfts are just you know uh, bored apes or whatever i mean blessing and a curse one of the ways that we tested our hypothesis is we made made it so that people could sell a version of their tweet and then jack dorsey one day discovered it and sold his first tweet for 2.9 million dollars okay that was great but there's only one place to go from the top and that's the bottom and that sort of led into the the burst of this nft bubble and the guy who bought it you know first of all why that much money uh, whatever and he can't sell it for you know 299 <laughs> Yeah. 
let me let and, me give you, and go that, ahead, Katie. Go ahead. No, nope, keep go. going. Okay, I want to give you another example. So a friend of mine has started painting. As it turns out, he's some sort of, of savant. His paintings are spectacular. I discovered his paintings on Facebook. Um, and I've bought like seven of them. And I'm having the actual paintings shipped back here to Amsterdam. So I will have his physical paintings. There's a record of his paintings as he's taken pictures of them and placed them on Facebook or sent me WhatsApp pictures of them. Um, what's cool is that I have pictures of versions of the paintings when, you know, as he's finishing it, especially this one in particular that I commissioned. And so he'd give me a version of it and he'd say, what do you think about putting something in the background? I'm like, yeah, I love the idea. Do it. Explain to me the relationship between the artwork, the digital representation of the artwork, his ownership of the artwork and my ownership of the artwork in this scenario sure. if we were to yeah within scent uh scent.co yeah um and I'll, I'll it can get a little bit well it's it, it's not complicated to do but 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 it can get a little complicated so How i'm going to do scent my help best. both of us or help him or help me um, exactly great yeah. question great provocation so okay. first of all he could um put pictures of his artwork of all of his artwork up on scent. He could take a picture, he could upload it, and he could say, this is one of one, right? Or he could say it's one of a hundred digital versions of the print you're getting, if if he wanted to, and you, and, and you were cool with that, right? Because you had already purchased something. Um, but what it does is it basically says that like the, the physical piece can still be for sale. There can be digital assets of that. There can be a digital twin of piece that you commissioned and you can collect that as well. And what it says on the blockchain it, on this ledger, it is, it says this thing was created. Here's the metadata. Here's who purchased it. And the reason that's good um, is that, and, and, it, and this isn't happening today yet because the broader ecosystem hasn't adopted the blockchain, but let's say it's 20 years from now and he's a famous artist and you own a piece and somehow you decide, maybe you decide or somebody else decides for you that the piece goes up to Sotheby's. If Sotheby's is looking at that blockchain and saying, okay, he uploaded it on send um, on the, on the primary market, 5% goes uh, transaction, 5% goes to stent, 95% goes to the artist on the secondary it's, 10% goes to the artist and 2.5% goes to set. And that's in perpetuity. So if you extrapolate that out and say, well, what if this existed for, say, you know, um, um, Warhol? Now, there could be, like, a lot of times, and maybe Warhol's a bad example, um, but... On the secondary market, that money does not go back to the Warhol Foundation. The money goes to Sotheby's and that's it, or the, the other person who sold it. So there, there is a way by recording things in perpetuity or by, by recording things on the ledger and, organ and, and the rest of the world starting to look at the ledger, there's a way for people to actually continue to make money off of their work. So... I like to use the example of, let's say I write a book 
you buy my book. Okay, I get paid. But then you take my book and you sell it at the used bookstore. The used bookstore makes the money off of that thing, but the artist doesn't make any money. If 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 the used bookstore was looking at the at the ledger at the blockchain, there's a way for me as the author to make money off secondary sales. The same goes for music. Same goes for UCDs and records and so on, etc. And this is what goes back to why we care about the technology and why it matters to our mission to enable anybody to make a creative income is there's more places that artists can make money than they're allowed to make right now. I mean, if I'm a, a hot shit painter and I get represented by a gallery, a gallery takes 50% and I get 50%. And that just seems totally unfair to me. Because I what remember, are they doing for that 50%? I remember um, Fran Leibowitz saying that she had a Warhol that she sold to somebody for like 80000 I This isn't exactly this story, but it's something like this. And now that, you know, that painting's worth, you know, $50 million. If If this was, if she had somehow bought it or registered it on Scent, that three hundred that 30 million purchase would she have gotten a piece of that yeah okay how does this how do you prevent this from falling prey to something that looks like a pyramid scheme uh, i know that's a great question um well first of all our site isn't open to everyone right i mean when we saw people putting up copycat things we took down our marketplace um and the 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 secondary market first of all, it doesn't exist yet. So, you know, and even the value, right? The example I gave you of the Jack Dorsey tweet being $2.9 million, the value, art is subjective and value is subjective. And right now, the secondary market isn't established for these things, really. I mean, there there's a few places you can go, like OpenSea and other places, but, but really, people aren't this stuff isn't turning hands yet. And I, I think that goes back to there, there's, there's reasons why people buy art, right? When rich people buy art, <laughs> really rich people, they're doing, a lot of times they're doing it because it's the safest place to put your money because the return on art is like something like 27%. It's, it's, it's something crazy. So they buy art during down markets and then they sell it and that's a great way to protect their money. Other people buy art because they like it and they want to keep it. I mean, I've never bought a piece of art and thought to myself, I'm going to sell it. I have this one piece of art I bought at the, at Bumbershoot when they had that, that, the art, the art shows there, like the print sales at Bumbershoot. I think it was at Bumbershoot. Anyways, I bought a piece there. It was like 1997. I paid $500 for it. And now today the artist has like, you know, in, in Brooklyn, one of his paintings done in tile in the subway. So wow. needless yeah. to say, that piece is worth a hell of a lot more money because it's a one of one. Now, I'm never going to sell it. I don't even know what it's worth today, but I know it's worth at least 10x. And and I think that, but but there's that market. And so right now, that like this can't be a pyramid scheme because there is no secondary market yet. 
because there's not enough entities looking at the blockchain. So right now it's about getting things on chain. And the, the, the real value isn't necessarily the secondary market. The real value is that the more data we get on chain around things that are important to people, either in real life or digitally, those things, A, become a part of our digital identity, but B, just like your ticket stubs are a part of your, your identity as a person. And the real value in having things on chain is that we can start to make so many experiences better because that data lives outside of a walled garden. So Amazon's recommendation engine, right, is only as good as the purchase history data that Amazon has. Now they have a shit ton, but imagine that your ticket stubs could somehow find their way, that data was on chain, could find its way into the Amazon algorithm. I bet your music recommendations would be, and book recommendations, and frankly, any recommendation would be a hell of a lot better. Okay, I have at least four follow-up questions. So, <laughs> I, hope, uh... I hope that I'm talking in a way that makes this uh, understandable. We're we're getting there together. I understand this more than I ever have in the past, so I think we're making progress. And and I get I get it because because the weird part is like this is no this is this is technology is just like it's taking what existed before and making it a little bit better. <laughs> yes. Okay. So here's question number one of my at least four questions that I have. Going back to my artist friend, every new painting that he paints, I wanted. So I'm like, but I have to stop like buying his paintings. But he did this one <laughs> painting in particular. It was kind of a Banksy-esque um, picture of a, of a bunny. And it had like some flowers in his hand. It doesn't matter. But I loved the painting and I tried really hard not to buy it. And then after a couple of months, I said, Brian, I, I can't get the bunny painting out of my head. I've got to buy it. Because he had, you know, he'd shown me, taken a picture of it and showed me. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I've painted over it, which he infuriatingly does a lot. And I've oh, given it to someone. <laughs> so, he so he has a photograph of, of it before he painted over it. So if he put that on scent, I could buy it as an NFT. And then I would have totally. my money. But then, but then. You would have your money. What can I do with it? Can I print it out? Can I make a lithograph of it? Or is it really just mine in the digital space? Like, what do I do with it? How can I enjoy oh, you it? Could, Other, you, you, yeah. you could do, you could do anything with it. I mean, I mean, you could have it, you know, on digital display on your wall. A lot of people do that with, with even before the whole NFT craze, there's a lot of video installed art or, or, or digitally installed art. Hell, there's a TV that, will cycle through pictures, uh, you know, or paintings. Um, I think the, the, the other part of it is it depends on, you know, like what, what, what an NFT really is, is a smart contract. It's a contract. So it's, he could say, he could have rules in there about what you're allowed to do, but once you buy that thing, yeah, sure. You could, if the quality of the, of, of the output of the digital image of it is good enough, you could, you could print it and hang it on your wall. And that's a great way for, for him to record that painting is even if he gave it to you for free, right. Is to put it up there and allow you to collect it. 
And sure, right now, you know, the the ecosystem hasn't totally caught up and you, you know, yeah, you have a, a profile page that allows you to look at the things you've collected. Um, but there are going to be there are going to be companies that pop up and and hell we'll build technology that allows you to you know right now you know VR isn't all that popular but eventually that stuff will will come along in the next three to five years um, headsets won't be so expensive or there will be new ways to to sort of mimic the art in places that you want. Somebody's going to create a beautiful framed screen that like that's going to happen. And these things aren't going away. So I would encourage you to get him to, to do that, to mit, to, to upload something anywhere, whether it's on scent or not, and allow you to, you know, buy the NFT so that you record that because he, because it was a great painting and he got painted over. So make sure that it's recorded at least digitally. And then how much would, how much do you think somebody like him would charge me for the NFT to the, the I original mean, painting? That part, that part is, is again, it goes back to the value, right? The subjectivity and the value. I mean, I've tried to sell, you know, like I put stuff up for a dollar and nobody buys it. Katie, sometimes Katie, they'll buy can one I, for can $5. I pause you? Because I think I'm finally understanding this. So I, I think I'm fine. I think I finally had a breakthrough. So this isn't like, because the next question I was going to ask you is, well, who could he sell that NFT to multiple people? But the answer to that is no, it's not the same as like printing out, you know, 50 pictures of, you know, your the, the album, you know, the concert photo yeah. from the cure and everybody else has it on their wall. Like I can sell the NFT to somebody maybe for more than I paid for it. But if I sell that NFT to somebody else, then Brian gets a piece of that. The artist. Exactly. Cause it's one of whether it's one of one or one of 10, like everything. In perpetuity. In perpetuity. And see, now I just, now I'm starting to understand it. Now let me ask you this question when we were going back to books, is there a way for this to work? If I buy, I guess maybe not, I don't know, but if I, it, it seems weird to me that like, how, let, let me phrase this. Let me just phrase this a different way. I buy a book, I download it on my Kindle. It feels like I should be able to sell that as a digital used book to somebody else for less than I paid for it. And that the artist, the author would maybe get, get a kickback there too but that's not how the way it works. So is there a version <laughs> of that me. or? Well, could right work, now or? those aren't, it, it could work, but right now those aren't NFTs. They're not on a ledger, but there, there could be an ecosystem for that. I mean, hell libraries check out digital stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I have, such I, a, I, go ahead. I, I would, I would venture to guess that will exist soon. That's why I struggle so much with my Kindle because I really miss holding a book in my hand. And the other day, actually, I bought a physical book and it felt so <coughs> nice to have a physical book in my hand again. But I couldn't read it very well because the because the font was too small and the lighting was dim. And I'm like, oh, I see, you know, I love walking into somebody's house that has a collection of books. But I'm like, oh, all I see now are just, you know, trees that have been turned into books. But the the experience of holding a physical book in your hand is somehow just well, nicer than a Kindle. And I, and I and you could give a book to somebody. 
you know, after you've you're tapping into, you're tapping into something that, that I'm also like in the background working I'm, I, somehow Beth, I'm producing an album. Yes. I, I, we've touched on this ever, ever so slightly. Um, yeah. Of How's I, it going? I, it's great. But, but one of the things that I talked to the artist, so this artist in particular, and, and I can't, I can't go into any details. No. Um, um, but he doesn't, he's not streaming, right? He only releases his work on vinyl. Um, his, he had this album that released at the beginning of the pandemic and it sold out. And, but what we talk about a lot is the experience, the experiential part of p- what people create holding that book, right? Even though our eyes are going bad and the light was dim and blah, blah, blah. But giving a book, opening up that piece of vinyl, reading through the liner notes, listening to it from beginning to the first side, beginning, flipping it over all the way to the end. Um, Live shows, like we, you know, that experiential part of, of art is a big deal. And the digital world, like we seemingly thought it was taken away, right? Kindle was going to take away, you know, physical books. No, that's not true. We still walk through old bookstores. Um, We still flip through vinyl, right? It's one of the reasons why I got a library card, just so if I'm really craving holding a book, I can go and get one. But, you know, for me, the Kindle experience is, it is a bit hollow, but for now it's my preferred experience when reading books. God, I'm I'm impressed that you can really get through a book. It's hard for me. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have to always have a book that I'm reading or I panic, but keep going. So, so pretty- anyways, I think the experiential part of things is uh, what a lot of artists crave. And just because something is represented digitally doesn't mean that it doesn't have experience tacked into it. A lot of people are trying to figure out what this means for their art, what, you know, like not everybody wants to play a live show. Okay. Well, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe there's lives. I mean, we went overnight in the pandemic from people playing live shows to people going on Facebook live and streaming a show and asking for donations, right? Facebook shut that down because of, of, um, digital rights and, and, and streaming rights and all of that. But there are lots of ways for people to release their work. Albums and books are being released as NFTs as we speak. And it's not, again, it's not just, it's not just physical goods or, or digital art in quotes. Um, This technology can be used for a lot of different things, including ticket stubs, including this conversation right now. We could, we could create a proof of attendance, an image, and we could mint it on the blockchain. And you and I could be the only holders of that. It's called a POAP, and we could we could record on 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 the ledger for for in perpetuity that we talked this day, this Sunday, November twelfth. Let's do it. I'll create a POAP for us. Thank you. Um, I think that in 
regarding digital art, it's like anything else. As soon as it's done really, really well, it's going to be revolutionary. And I started to get my first taste of this was just this past summer. There was this installation at an old church in the center of Amsterdam. And this church is decommissioned, so it's used as an art space now. And it was this history of the great masters. So it's all these, you know, Van Gogh and Rembrandt paintings that everybody has seen a million times, but there was a, and Vermeer's and a story behind it. And you went into this church and they had all of these the giant pillows and fat boys and bean bags on the floor and you lay down on the floor and then you would look up and over and all of the floors and the ceilings, there was a projection of this extremely high quality, high um, resolution imagery of all of these paintings that would kind of swirl and zoom in and zoom out in 3D. And it was a spectacular, beautiful experience because you're in there physically with other people everybody's lying down on the floor it's kind of you know it's granite so it's kind of cold and um in this church and I just thought oh this is this is an example of a combination of the digital and the physical heading in the right direction for a truly meaningful and touching and moving experience and and that's what art is supposed to do it's supposed to touch us and move us and and that's what this installation did so I saw that kernel of like where this can go as opposed to just, you know, staring at some digital poster on a wall. And it feels, again, like I'm not I'm not connecting with this. It, it can be done. I think this is just a very, yeah, very it can beginning. be done. And and even even that digital poster, it's like how many how many shows did I have I gone to where I, I bought the T-shirt or I bought the poster and I hung it on my wall and. I mean, even there was a there was a piece in the New York Times, I think yesterday, about about um, merchandise and from shows, and like walking down the street with a Nirvana T-shirt from a certain show. I mean, Nirvana bad example because they get reprinted now, but but like for instance, I in like nineteen eighty nine or I think. I tore a Nirvana, you know, flyer off a telephone pole and I kept it for years and I eventually threw it away. That flyer would actually be worth something now. Mm. I wish I still had it framed on my wall because I was there. And it's a part of my identity. Just like your ticket stubs are like, you know, I don't know what you're ever going to do with your ticket stubs, but like, you know, I think my friend Rick Webb has has all of the ticket stubs he's he's done and he's like cataloged them. They're like they're like in a binder. And you know, that's part of who he is. I mean, am I gonna sit down and thumb through it? Probably, just like I'll probably thumb through his books and his vinyl. Yeah. But your but, memor your memories are part of your identity. Your storytelling is part of your identity. Right. I mean, we is all, it not a part of your identity if all, you can't monetize it? Is that I mean just to play devil's no, advocate. No, it's still, no, it's still, I mean, not everything is going to be up for sale, right? Rick's ticket stubs may, like, he may collect them digitally going forward, you know, but they're still a part of his identity. Mm -hmm. You know what else is the a part of my identity? Collect, 
is is hold on katie is all of my photographs that i've uploaded to facebook it's the only place where those photographs live and it's very very hard to access them you can't really search them you certainly can't sort them and if there's some photo that i want to use for some reason i have to like scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll until i find it it's a terrible experience i feel like facebook is holding my photographs hostage how could scent help me like you, you know just have a better um easier access to my own photographs and although i guess they're not technically mine anymore but I, I bet you have an answer for this well well yeah i do because first of all if you we've made it painfully easy and i'm to sell it but like painfully easy to go from your iphone or whatever phone you're on and upload an image to the site and mint it on the blockchain <clears throat> super easy like the easiest it's, it's so easy and that's recording that you took the picture i mean I've had several times in the past, I've put pictures on Instagram and because I'm public, right? People have used my my images in places that they didn't ask for my permission. And that happens all the time on Instagram. Well, and, it happens all the time <clears throat> anywhere. If you find some picture on Google, if you, all you have to do is screenshot it. Oh, you sure. Use it, you know, even yeah. if it's got a well, watermark right. on it, it's like, I don't care. I'll use I'll, the watermarks visible. I'm sure. still going to use it. Yeah. Right, right. Click save. Right. And nothing's going to stop. Right. Right. Click save from happening. Mm -hmm. But with a secondary market or something else that like because because NFTs are metadata, all of that is traceable. Oh, wow. So especially. Yeah. So, so especially for musicians, right? Like if they have publishing or they work with a label or they work with, you know, ASCAP BMI, like even if they re release something digitally as opposed to on streaming or on vinyl, like that stuff's going to be able to be tracked. But these institutions, right, have to start looking at this technology as something they're going to have to live with. It's not going away. I can tell you that. How does scent.co, if it does, play with AI such as chat GPT? We we don't right now. But I'm saying that like what are the what are the questions that we ask uh, that Michael and I ask is that my co-founder in life and in work also comes from an intellectual property and patent background. He's like, is chat GPT, um, you so know, one, one calling or referring is... to um, intellectual property as it's, um, you know, giving you output and are there infringements there that are untraceable? I would imagine this is a fan. This is a fantastic question, and I totally want to talk to Michael and nerd out about this. Um, so one of the things that um, that you know, I mean, because there's M metadata associated with it. Again, Google, if Google or ChatGPT is pulling stuff up, and they're pulling stuff from the blockchain, and the blockchain is saying, you know, if there's a flag that says "Do not use me." for chat GPT or for AI, like that needs to be acknowledged. And, and that's something that we're, we're building into our platform is the, it could be a watermark. It could be a check, check mark, but like institutions are going to have to actually pay attention to what the creator's desire is. Now is the question awesome. becomes then, 
the question then becomes how enforceable is it right mm. and and i mean if i'm going to do a, a a takedown notice of one of my photos you know and i have this metadata on the ledger that says i checked this box and yet somebody still you know how do i find out that somebody's using it whether it's chat gpt or google ai or whoever who's he what's it like there's there's a reckoning that has to happen a, around this and i i totally agree but there are mechanisms by which we can start to say this image and we know how we we already know how to find out if somebody uploads something to our site that's a copy and we kick them off because we don't we don't suffer that because we're about anyone making a creative income so copycats don't belong yeah does dissent um which is great i was sorry i was like yeah as if that's like not a big deal that's a you know radically amazing idea and i was uh, in my adhd already like thinking about my next question that next. i'm dying to ask yeah, you so it sounds to me that scent doesn't really need um a critical mass to be successful that this is something that can percolate and grow organically um, over time as people understand the value of this because I as a user who owns an NFT at any time can sell it on can pass it on it's not like something that needs a lot of, of eyes like an auction space you know where yes, eBay or, I mean, or Amazon right, it's, it's why we, is, yeah as good as how many people are looking at down. it it's why we shut down our marketplace. There was stuff yeah. happening, but we didn't like what was happening. So we shut mm -hmm. it down, which was, I think, shocked a lot of people. But, um, and probably just, you know, made it harder for us to raise money. Um, I believe that every creator is a flywheel. And so the, the more creators we have doesn't mean we have to have critical mass but even a few big creators will get a flywheel going, a few brands, because I think of brands and, and creators as exactly the same early on, right? An emerging brand is some creative person starting something. And it's not that we need to have, we need to be a Facebook or an Instagram in terms of size, but we need we need to get the flywheels moving so that we can be self-sufficient. And it, right now, what we need, what we have to do is raise some money to prolong us to get those flywheels going. So it's a little bit of, it's you're, you're right. We don't need to be like ubiquitous um, because I also think in the web three world, like there isn't a zero, it's not a zero sum game. There's not, there's not a winner takes all kind of, mojo there could be multiple different social networks there could be multiple different sites um where you could find music or art or or do whatever um but we have to we have to get the flywheels going and and that's why capital is important to us right now we're Ugh, definitely going capital yeah i know but Let's just keep it positive. Um, we're definitely going to have to have, I think, a, a secondary follow-up um, episode talking about the IP implications here. Um, I, I was already thinking, um, let's say I become, you, you know, a household name and I've taken a selfie of myself and put it on um, scent. 
So if somebody wanted to, uh, I don't know, do a parody of me, which would be their right to do so as I'm a household name, as long as it's not, you know, libelous or slander, slanderous, would they have to pay me to use that photo of me, you know, to create a meme or something like that? Again, that would be within their rights, within fair use, um, or... Is are they not are they shut out of access to that photograph? Or I, I mean, look, they could they could. It depends on where that pup that picture appeared, right? If it was on Instagram, you know, it's they could right click save that thing, right, and create a parody. But by creating a parody or or doctoring it or in some way that makes it different, I mean, I'm not the lawyer, so I don't know exactly uh, the right language to use to say this, but but. Let's say that you took that picture, that selfie, and you said, this is um, limited to 10 copies. And if they didn't have one of those copies and it wasn't traceable, then there might be something to enforce there. But let's say they did collect one of your selfies. Then maybe, depending on the smart contract, there's there's something in there that you have to say about about how your image can be used and then it's up to the institutions that enforce that stuff so if i wanted to start playing around with scent right now i'm thinking about the food photography for our you know our various websites and our projects um, our instagram posts but also my logo i think it would be really cool to have that mint i think you're calling it start with when the logo was created by the graphic designer and then as I took possession of that logo, as I own it now, because I've paid for it. Um, I don't know why. I would just like to have it kind of sitting up there just as, 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 a, as a record. Well, Is that something that you, I could do? You, you absolutely can. And you have an account. I have to figure out how to use it. Um, it's so, really... Um, we, can do a, we can do a session on that. But it is really easy once you're logged in to, to just take something from and upload it directly. It's it's super easy, but I can talk you through it. You should you, you should you should muscle through it. I'm we're gonna and end give this, me feedback. We're gonna muscle. I'm gonna give you feedback, and I'm gonna end our conversation by asking you um, a question that was asked um, to me by the most recent investor that said no to us. Um, he said we're raising three million euros right now, and he said to me. Well, 3 million euros is a lot of money. That's really going to change your life. Are you prepared to handle that amount of money? <laughs> and I was like, um, I used to be responsible for $360 million worth of merchandising content every year, but I guess no is what you're asking me to say. And I, I was like, okay, you, with, with these investors, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that maybe he's a little bit nervous too, or he's junior, or he's running out of questions to try and ask me because yeah, he doesn't said, want to give me the you money. You said three but or 30? Three. And, and so I just, what I should have done is is, is mirrored it back to him and gone, um, I'm, not, I'm not ready for my life to be changed. And just try to like get deeper into why he was asking me that ridiculous question. So well, I'm going to ask you the same question, Katie. Are you ready for when you get your funding? Is it going to change your life significantly? Can you handle it? So it's not going to change my life. It's going to change the trajectory of my company, which means right now we're seven people. 
And that means seven jobs continue on. So significantly, is it going to change anyone's life? Um, yes, and that we're going to stay alive and the cr people that are passionate about our product are still going to be able to use it. We're going to be able to pay our staff and we're going to be able to build more kick-ass product. Is it going to change my life personally? N only in the most positive way, which is that it gives us runway. Yeah. And I'm going to be able to pay myself like a living wage for the first time ever. I was like, dude, are you serious? That's a really interesting point, by the way. Instead of people always comparing startups in our phase of like who's ahead of us, like look at everybody that was already given money who has failed and we're still here. Like, let's <laughs> let's look in the other direction. You know, I think that um, I think that I'm going to have to make some kind of swag about cockroaches or I'm going to have to make a, a post and mint it. <laughs> I think we've tapped onto something here. I'm full on cockroach. I thought I was zebra, but I'm definitely cockroach. So you just Team cockroach. <laughs> Katie, it was awesome talking to you. I, you know, you're going to be one of our recurring guests on the show. So this was our inaugural. I love talking too. I'd, I like talking to you and um, yeah. I, I have a feeling as soon as we end this, you're going to be like, oh, I wish I would have said this and this and this and let me know what they are. So we can just hop right back on and do another one. My podcast, okay. my rules. Yes. All right, dear. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, Beth. Bye. Bye.